0: Right. How are we? You okay? You know, we we were uh, planning to do this worry series and go, looking back on 2020, look at all the things we had to worry about in 2020. And 2020 hasn't gone anywhere. It's just, you know, refreshed itself in 2021. So uh, be encouraged. Uh, I think this series is going to be a good one for you, for me. It's been um, one that I've been meditating on here all week. So I am excited to get going here um, in this series. Uh, Hang on, let me fix my mic, it's like in my mouth. All right, we good? You got a Bible? Let me give you a little bit of an intro. Why don't you grab your Bible and find Psalm 131. Um, like I said, we've got a lot that is happening. Uh, maybe you've got a lot happening in, in your life as you look at 2021. Maybe you've got a lot happening relationally. Uh, In your home, in your marriage, in your workplace, Uh, there's lots going on in our culture. There's lots going on politically. There's a lot going on with uh, really all sorts of things. It feels like the temptations to worry are anywhere and everywhere, aren't they? Uh, That everything is demanding your attention and your focus and your drive, uh, mentally speaking. Uh, so I want to begin uh, somewhat. Here's what I want to do. is I was talking to Brandon earlier today. We all gather here as a as a staff team in the morning before you all get here, and we pray for you. We pray for one another, pray for all of those who are going to be a part of uh, what God wants to do here this morning in your hearts and in our hearts. And Brandon said, uh, you know, Steve, you should tell them when you roll your sleeves up, you need to tell them to roll their sleeves up too. And I said, that's That's true. Uh, So what we're going to do is uh, I want you to think of these next about five weeks as just uh, a little bit of a counseling session. So we're going to be honest a little bit together. We're going to take the things that are concerning to us, the things that are demanding our mental attention and focus and energy, and I want you to be intentional with bringing those. So here's what I want you to do. I want to challenge you. I'm going to ask you this question, and I want you to do something for me this week. Take the things that you are worried about, and I want you to take one step, and I want you to write them down, okay? Whether put them in your phone, put them on a piece of paper, I want them to get out of your brain and onto a piece of paper. Are you with me? Okay, and I want you to think about what are the things that you're worried about? No matter who you are, if you're watching online, if you came in the back door of our church today, and you've never been in the back door of a church, all of us, have things that demand our mental attention that cause us to think a whole lot relationships money career school marriage not being married wanting to be married wanting children having children parenting children caring for others There are probably a million reasons for you to worry. And what I want you to do is to write those things down in such a way that you can see them in front of you. And I wanna give you one word that is gonna sum up our time together that I want you to put next to that list as we go into the next uh, several weeks. I'm gonna get real practical, uh, but not today today, what I want to do is kind of give you the battleground. I want to draw the lines on the field to let you know where worry happens, what we need to be aware of, what are the temptations that rise out of our hearts when we're dealing with the temptation to worry. And I want to do that in such a way so that we know the ground rules, where we can apply the truths that the Apostle Paul is going to show us in Philippians chapter 4, and we'll get to that over the next four weeks. But today is going to be a lot of uh, theory, uh, a lot of theology, a lot of self-understanding so that we can be honest with ourselves, honest with one another in our relationships, and that we can really serve one another and those of us who are tempted to stumble over worry. Maybe you don't worry. Maybe you're both of the people in this room who don't have any worries. Maybe you're married to a worrier. Maybe you have a kid who worries. Maybe you have a parent who worries. Maybe that you know people that are in your circles of influence, people at work who, who are fretful and nervous and always concerned about what could be, or always concerned with what ought to be, and how it's not, and how emotionally and mentally they wear that reality. A lot. Well, what I want to do is give you just three little bitty verses. There are three verses in the middle of the psalm, Psalm 131. I have gone to this text a lot when I have counseled individuals, when I've had conversations with people who are dealing with worry. Uh, and this is a text, I think Spurgeon said that it's the shortest ladder to the highest of heights. It's just three little bitty verses, but it shows you... Uh, David, in the quiet. It shows you David alone with God. And what David is going to do for us is to demonstrate some significant temptations, uh, demonstrate some significant steps of obedience, and then really command the church to pay attention. All right? That's Psalm 131 uh, in a nutshell. So if you've got, uh, you got your list, You got your mentally, your list already, the top two or three things that are eating your lunch right now, mentally, emotionally. I want you to have those on the forefront of your mind. And I'm going to answer some of those by the end of our time today, okay? Let's pray and we'll jump in here together. Father in heaven, we come before you as people who are insufficient, we come before you as people who are dependent. As people who we learned last week in James chapter 4 who are a mist that appear for a little while and then are gone. Father, we are the sheep of your pasture. We are dependent, needy people. We don't have it all together. We don't have the strength or the wisdom or the ability to know what to do in the variety of situations that confront us that we bring our sin to you, we bring our weakness to you, we bring our dependence to you. We pray this morning that as we come to this text that we would choose the route of humility and dependence upon you, that nothing we say here today would put confidence in what we can do in the strength of our flesh, but that we would admit and confess that we are weak and we are needy and we are unable to defeat the temptation of worry without you. So Father, as we examine our hearts and we think about who you are and we take charge of the responsibility we have to steward our heart well, we pray for your grace to do that. We pray for your mercy to do that. We pray for your spirit to give light to our eyes, to connect the truth of God with our hearts that we might leave this place hopeful and joyful and confident in God who loves us and who's proved it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we confess our fretting and our worry, the difficulties we have that we bring in here today that come from a variety of places. We set them before you, and, Father, we look to you to be the God who can direct us and guide us and ultimately lead us in the ways of peace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and for his sake, amen. All right, Psalm 130. Y'all there? 131, sorry. Psalm 130 and 131 go really well together uh, if you want to read them in conjunction. Uh, they're really great like that. But Psalm 131, let me tell you a little bit about these psalms. We're in a, in a period or a section of the scriptures that are called the Psalms of Ascent. Let me tell you what those are. There's only 15 of them. They're psalms that you would sing on the way to worship. Uh, ascent means to go up. You approach Jerusalem geographically. Uh, in such a way where you're always going up to Jerusalem. From whatever direction you come toward Jerusalem, you're headed up. You're climbing the mountain, as it were, to go up to a place where you would worship, sacrifice, celebrate, feast with God's people. So it's the, the Psalms of Ascent, are they're sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. If you know what the Feast of Tabernacles is, it's a time where the entire nation would live and sleep in tents, To remember how God led them through the wilderness. So it's a memorable time in the culture and year of Israel when they would sing these psalms. So as such, these psalms and these songs are meant to do a couple things. They're meant to be corporate in their nature. So they're the songs that you and I would kind of put on the the radio on your way to church on Sunday. They're the songs that would capture your mind and heart with all of God's people to think about God's goodness and God's provision in the life of his people over a 40-year period where they go back and they remember this is how faithful God was. This is how kind God was. This is how God had led us and cared for us and met all of our needs. So as we begin, the sense that I want you to have in Psalm 131 is that these are songs for us. They're songs for all of us. And one of the things that I think is very clear, if you worry, or if you're tempted to worry, that worry has a, an element where it isolates. Would you agree? That it has a way of getting you into your own mind, into your own perspectives, getting you away from other people, because often other people don't worry the same way that you worry, and all of a sudden you feel isolated and you feel alone. And what the Psalms of Ascent help us to do is they help us to be corporate in the way that we understand our spirituality. They help us look next to the person with us and around us so that we can address the particular individual sins, struggles, and difficulties that we bring into this place. Did you bring those this morning? Did you bring things in here this morning that maybe other people don't understand? Burdens, sins, fears, worries, and you feel alone. And the Psalms of Ascent are meant to make you a part of the family. They're meant to be a rhythm in the way that we all look away from ourselves and from our own stories and our own individual struggles and sins, and we look to a God who's been faithful in the past, who's faithful today and will be faithful into the future. Psalm 131, a song of a sense of David. Now, we did 1 Samuel for about 16 years, about a year ago. And uh, if you remember the life of David, just broadly speaking, David is the youngest of all of his brothers. He gets anointed by Samuel on the heels of God, rejecting King Saul. And David spends years getting ready for the throne. In fact, you have lots of psalms that are in the scriptures that talk about David facing oppressors, David facing people who are trying to kill him, David having to act crazy in front of a Philistine king. So the Philistine king drives him off because David is acting like a, like a, a, a lunatic. David has to run for his life. David has to hide in caves. David has to have spears thrown at him. David fails in his own temptations once he becomes king in the sin of Bathsheba. He has to get confronted by prophets. But one of the things that I think is helpful for us as we get into Psalm 131 is to acknowledge that if you have reasons for worry, David had just as many. David had seasons of life where he wasn't sure what was coming next where he fled into foreign lands because the king of Israel was after him where he's hiding in caves not sure whether or not God was going to deliver him into Saul's hands he watched as friends and priests were murdered for helping him so that if you bring in anxieties and worries know that you're in good company with David would you agree That David has a life where he's got lots of reasons to be worried. So let's see how David sets the ground rules for us, shall we? A song of ascents of David. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart. All right, stop right there. Art staff makes fun of me for doing things like getting like two words into a text and then stopping. But I've got to talk about this before we go on. Because if you don't have those two words that begin Psalm 131, all of what I'm about to say is going to feel like self-help. Okay? Please hear me on this. Nothing I am going to say is going to exclude dependence on the Lord. You are not equipped to handle worry on your own. You are woefully inadequate to be able to defeat the temptation to worry on your own. You with me? You hear me on that? That before we get going, What you have in this text is David going one on one with God. And before we move any further, what David says in these four words is so important to you and I. Oh Lord, my heart. Heart in the scriptures uh, is not our feelings as much as it is the foundational commitments to life and how we operate out of those. That our hearts are the things that direct our feelings, that direct our actions, that direct how we think about things. Jonathan Edwards in talking about the heart said it's the center of all of our emotional commitment out of which we make declarations Of things that are worthy and unworthy. Things that are good for me to follow, things that are bad for me to follow, things that are pleasing to me, things that are not pleasing to me. So that when David begins this psalm, he begins this psalm in private, okay? He begins it one on one with God. It's David in the prayer closet. It's David alone. Nobody sees this about David, but it's captured here for us so that we would know when David comes to God, he's bringing the foundational commitments of who he is. He's bringing the deepest longings of his heart to God. So let me ask you just as we start, how do you pray? Do your prayers kind of float on top like styrofoam? Now, I'm going to talk about uh, making our requests known to God, bringing God our supplications and our prayers and our intercessions and all those sorts of things when we get to Philippians chapter 4. But before we get there, I, I want us to see that when it comes to our relationship with God, we don't just bring our anxieties, our worries, our requests, our thoughts, our feelings, our perspectives. We bring us. You bring you, and you lay all of you out in front of God. And you're honest before God. You go, God, this is all of who I am. These are my worries, my fears, my concerns. These are the longings, the desires, the passions. And I'm bringing them to God. A lot of times our prayers kind of go, God, mess this thing and bless this deal and do this thing and bless this thing without going deep like lead to the bottom of a pool, into the person of God, and go, God, this is me exposed. God, I'm not being polite. All of my ugly, all of my longing and desire and the inside parts of me are on display for you. God, you see all of who I am. And that's where David starts. Now, David's going to show us three particular temptations that are going to happen. And they're going to happen in David's prayer life. Did you know you could sin when you pray? You know that? Isn't that disappointing? Gosh, that's disappointing, isn't it? But David's going to show you three particular temptations that show up as he comes to God. And that he's going to say, God, I've gone to battle with these temptations that are in my heart, and God, they're before you, and you see them, and I'm going to talk to you about what they are. So here's your first one. Uh, you know, let me say this: Tim Keller writes this great book on prayer. Have you, have you read that? Have you read Tim Keller's book on prayer? Fantastic little book, so convicting. I've read it twice, and each time I'm like, I, I don't even know if I know how to pray. Have you ever heard of prayer? I'm not even sure. Uh, he, He has a quote in that book that I think is so helpful as we look at Psalm 131 here. It's a real short quote. Here's what it says. He says, you can't truly know yourself without prayer. It's only in the light of God's presence that you can finally see your heart as it is. I'll read it one more time. You can't truly know yourself without prayer. It's only in the light of God's presence that you can finally see your heart as it is. If you want a true recognition of who you are, of the areas that you want to grow in your life, of the fears and anxieties and worries and disappointments and sins that you have on the inside that nobody else sees, the only way you're going to do that is through prayer. You can't get smarter and deal with those things. The thing that is going to have to happen in your life and in my life for us to grow into the people that God wants us to be is being face-to-face, on our knees, before God. You with me? So watch these temptations. Here's what, what David is going to say. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Now, that's probably pretty easy to understand, right? Here's David and his relationship with God, and he's recognizing that what he's doing in the presence of God is making sure that his heart is not high, but his heart is low. When you come to the Scriptures and think about the idea of humility, humility is always a choice. And either God humbles you or you humble you. But one of the fruits of the Spirit is not humility. Humility is a choice. It's an action. It's a verb. And what David does when he comes into the presence of God is acknowledge, God, I'm not coming with an arrogant heart. The one way that will guarantee that you learn nothing from an encounter with Jesus Christ is coming with an arrogant heart. And what David acknowledges, listen, we, no matter because of sin... We all have this tendency to inflate our own maturity, inflate our own perspective, inflate how godly we think we are. Inflate the ambitions in our heart that are sinful as really godly. As having this tendency to not be able to see ourselves accurately. That's what causes prayers that skim across the surface like a stone. Rather than prayers that begin to deal with the real honest truth of who we are on the inside. So this has to do with how you view yourself. How do you see you right now? Are you pretty good? You know, there's a, there's a story in, um, it's, a, it's an account of Moses. Uh, and it's the one place in the scriptures that talk about Moses and his humility, his meekness. And it, it, the author says that Moses was the meekest man on earth. Now that happens when you spend time with God face-to-face in the Tenth of Meeting. Would you agree? But the thing, the, in the context of where it's spoken, it's in Numbers, I believe it's Numbers 18. In context, it's spoken under a, in, the, uh, in a leadership conflict Where Aaron and Miriam say to Moses, God's spoken through us too, Moses, why are you so special? And if you want to see arrogance show up in your heart, watch how your heart responds to what people think of you. You with me? Isn't that the worst? So David says, here's my first temptation. My temptation is to view myself wrongly. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, handle my heart in the presence of the Lord. God, I'm going to humble myself. Peter talks about this. James talks about this. Philippians 2 talks about this with Jesus who took on the form of man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on the cross. James and Peter both says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due time he will exalt you. It's a choice. Number two. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, watch me. the eyes up here just for a second. This isn't that I'm doing this. I'll talk about that in a second. It's that my eyes are too high and I'm looking down on others. Like I'm doing now. You with me? That my eyes are too high. So the first one has to do with how I see myself. The next one has to do with how I see others. How am I evaluating the other people who are in my life or at my workplace or are doing things that I wouldn't approve of because they're not on my list of approved activities? Now, David is recognizing his perspective on himself. He's also recognizing his perspective on others, that David says, my eyes aren't too high, which means I don't have this constant critical eye toward others. Jesus talks about this, right? He talks about taking the log out of your own eye so that you can see to take the speck out of the other person's eye. It's in the context of relationships about what is right or wrong and how they should be living to standards that I feel are appropriate, but they're not sharing my same convictions about my standards. So number two, my eyes are not raised too high. Now. Two places, humility. Before I go on, humility is going to show up. It's going to show up, in one, in your relationship about how you see yourself. And a lot of times, I'm not going to see this. Your friends aren't going to see this. Cultivating an arrogant and proud heart is something that typically people won't see until you get to the second part of this verse, in the way that you perceive and look at others. Jesus talks about this in a parable. It's over in Luke chapter 18. I'll read it to you. It says this. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. See how they go together? I trust in myself that I am righteous, that I have it all together. And two, and it results in my perspectives on others, my contempt of others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see that? Personal arrogance, proud heart, contempt of others. They both go together. They're inevitable. That when you're cultivating a proud heart, immediately you move uh, from pride on the inside to comparison on the outside. Okay, here's your third one. Uh, how I see myself, how I see others. And this is a great one. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Literally, it's, it's I don't walk in those things. Commentators look at that and they, and they say that David recognizes his sphere of influence and he doesn't overstep his bounds. He knows what he's responsible for and he knows what he's not responsible for. That's captured in the New Testament in an idea called sober-mindedness, that I consider myself with sober-mindedness, that I'm able to see this is my responsibility, my duty before the Lord, and these, quite frankly, are not. When David is talking about great and marvelous things, that word marvelous is a Hebrew word called Pele. The first time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 18, and it's translated a variety of ways, as wonderful, as amazing, uh, as impossible. And in Genesis 18, the first time God uses it, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And you know what Genesis 18 is? It's the context of God's promise coming through to fulfill the um, Isaac being born to Abraham and Sarah. What's David saying? He's saying that he recognizes who he is. You see how self-aware David is in prayer? How he's seeing who he is. He's seeing how he looks at others. And then David sees God and himself correctly. Listen, we live in a time. I'm not going to jump on both feet. Jump on. (laughs) I guess you have to. You can jump on both feet if you want. Uh, I'm not going to rail on social media or the media at large in general during this sermon. But I will say that we live in a time where there is a massive temptation for you to give a perspective and insight on things that you have no business giving a perspective and insight on. You with me? Can you apply that on Monday? David's, David recognizes there are some things that God's responsible for that I am not. And it's arrogant for me to spend my meditation, anxiety, my thought, and my mental energy on things that I cannot control and that God is ultimately responsible for. I don't walk in those things, God. So let me give you a real easy like, application. Can you say, I don't know? Can you say that? Say, I don't know. You, see, I, you can do it. I know you can do it. Look at that. But you're going to be faced with some temptation this week where somebody's going to demand that you have a perspective and opinion on something that you ought to say, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. I don't know. I haven't given that a lot of thought recently. I haven't spent enough time searching the scriptures to know what I ought to think about that. And what David says, I don't occupy, I don't walk in those places. God, you walk in those places. I do not. Okay, you got got your big three temptations? Where do the temptations show up? They show up in prayer closet. They show up with you and God one-on-one where God is exposing things in your life and in your mind and in your heart that you ought not to be worrying about. He's exposing perspectives in your heart that you ought not have. He's exposing a revelation of who you are before the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, about yourself that is inappropriate for you to have when you are in prayer to God. Let me give you a recipe for worry. You want one? Here's if you want to worry well, like you want to kill it at worry, you want an ulcer, this is what you need to do. Number one, stop praying, okay? Don't do any praying at all. Number two, spend a lot of your mental energies on who you are and who you ought to be according to some standard that you have on the inside. We all have them. We all have these standards that we carry around that we uh, provide ourselves that are just sufficient enough in our mind and heart to make us feel pretty good about ourselves, right? Spend a lot of time in that agenda and plan that you have for you. Number three, begin comparing yourself to others. Spend a lot of time evaluating what others are doing, how they ought to be doing it differently, and how you think they ought to reorder their lives. And then number four, spend your time thinking, meditating, and processing things that you cannot control at all. You got that? Guaranteed, you will get an ulcer. Guaranteed, that's the way to do it. Okay, now I'm going to give real practical things between verse 1 and verse 2, and we're going to get into that in Philippians chapter 4. But that's the, that's the battleground. You, that's the ring. You got it? You're stepping into the ring in the context of prayer to understand some really big temptations. Now what I want you to see next is how David addresses those temptations. Okay, I can't just live my life on don't do this, right? I've got to have some do this Right, I've got to have some obedience, some ways in which I'm getting into the ring. I'm not just playing defense, we're playing offense. Look at verse 2. But, God, I haven't done these things, but I have done this thing. God, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Now, let me tell you something. I believe that God, in his word, And through the power of the Spirit, and the context of the community of the church that he gives us, and in good friendships, gives us the resources to be able to battle worry and win. You believe that? No? That's okay. I'll convince you. Why doesn't it say, God, you have calmed and quieted my soul? Isn't that a question that you have when you get this? Shouldn't I just handle worry and then lay down on the ground and God kind of just sort of makes everything magically peaceful? Isn't that how how you want worry to be taken away? You kind of want a vaccination against worry and go, I just don't do it anymore. But that's not how David goes after the temptations David goes after the temptations by taking responsibility for his heart. Listen, you may have 5,000 reasons to worry. You may have 10,000 temptations to worry. But you have responsibility for your heart in a way that nobody else does. We have six children and my children have reached the age where they discuss things and they have conflict where they will say things like that happened and you make me so, what? Mad. And I have to have the sanctification conversation with my children of saying nobody else is responsible for your heart. Nobody else is using your lips and putting their hands and making you say the things that you say, that's on you. And what we need to talk about is how you need to be a leader in the way that you speak. And I tell my children, you can have this, this is for free. Uh, I tell my children that leaders are fast, and it's an easy little phrase. I say leaders lead their feelings, they're acting, they're speaking, they're thinking, and I say it over and over again, and I shout it loudly, and I make up songs about it because I want them to know that in the process of your sanctification, you have the responsibility to steward and lead your heart. You do. And I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying on your own. I'm not saying do it in your own strength. I'm saying lean on others, pray to God, depend on his word and his spirit. But you have a responsibility to what uh, Proverbs says. Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. And a lot of times the temptations to worry feel like they're out there and they're against me. And my, my goal is just to be defensive, is to keep my hands up and not get hit by worry. And David says, I have calmed and I have quieted my heart. That David recognizes his heart is his business. This is why prayer is so important in dealing with your heart before the Lord. All right. You with me? Now, what David's about to do is give you an illustration He's going to give you a picture. And if, you're, uh, if you haven't been around babies, we have six kids in my house. We have been around babies a lot. If you are uh, a young mom and you are currently breastfeeding, this illustration is for you. If you're a parent, you remember this illustration that David is about to give. David is about to give you a picture of what is happening in his relationship with God, and he's going to give it in the context of a breastfeeding mom. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, what's a weaned child? A weaned child is a child that has moved from the liquid diet of breast milk into excuse me, the solid diet of the finger foods and the Cheerios and the chicken fingers and the, you fill in the blank, whatever it is you give your kids that you know they they like, right? That's the phase we're at with our young kids is like, what do they like? I don't know, what will they eat? Depending on whatever they like, give them whatever they want so they can put food in their mouth. Real picky, right? David says, here's what's happening, God, in my relationship with you as I'm processing the temptations I have toward arrogance, in the way I see others and consume my mental energy with things I have no control over. God, my heart and soul is calmed like a weaned child within me. Now, a weaned child means that the relationship between the kid and the mom has changed. If you are breastfeeding an infant, you know that infants who are breastfeeding breastfeed like they're mad at it, they're desperate. They don't eat for the taste. They eat because they're frantic, that if they don't eat, they will die. And there comes a time, we, we've had these, uh, we've had six kids. We're on number six right now, and number six is in the process of weaning. And she doesn't like it. They've all had different mannerisms as they've gotten out of the weaning phase, but number six does not like it. And number six will run up to Suzanne and will shout, Milky time. And I like Milky time! Grabbing onto her shirt and her pants, and I want Milky time with you! Desperate, frantic, because it's Milky time. Now, let me pause there just for a second. We know that for her to grow into maturity, she cannot do milky time forever, right? For her to grow into a young lady who is strong, that she cannot exist on a liquid diet forever. There has to be a change. The relationship between child and mom has got to take on a new tenor for her to reach true maturity. Uh, I was uh, in my early 20s. I'm 43 now. This is now 20 years ago. I would not call, have called myself a warrior because I was just too arrogant. I would call myself uh, like devoted to discernment. That's what I'd call myself I'm really focused on uh, discerning the right things to do. I was really like a squirrel on the inside that was always watching for the The nut and the tree and the thing that kind of coming up the tree and down the tree. And there's a round and moving there. That was my heart on the inside. And I had a real problem in my Christian life because I would encounter people in in the Christian culture, generally speaking, who would talk about God in these massive, these like huge, sweeping, beautiful terms about God's intimacy and his presence and all closeness and all this kind of stuff. And I'd get so mad because I didn't have that. I didn't feel that. That wasn't my relationship with God. And as I look back now 20 years later, and I look back to the time of my life in my 20s, I am recognizing that what God was doing in that time was weaning me off of Milky Time. He wanted my relationship with him to be different than one of frantic dependence where I'm always dictating my relationship with God on my terms. Because that's what a breast, if you, if you know, if you've raised children or had children or uh, understand a breastfeeding child, you know that it changes your entire world, right? Moms, am I right? That it reorganizes, moms, amen? Say it reorganizes your whole life, your culture, your plans, because your, it's milky time. Milky time's got to happen. Breastfeeding's got to happen. I got to be in the car because I can't go in the store because it's just milky time and breastfeeding. All of that's happening. But what David says here is that his relationship with God has changed. God, here is what's happening in our relationship. I am taking the posture of humility. I am taking a posture of dependence because, God, I believe that our relationship has changed and that you are worthy to be praised and to followed, but on your terms, not mine. So that now my soul becomes calm because I move to a place of dependence and trust and humility, not demanding that God answer my prayers on my schedule, my timing, and according to my rules. You with me? And if you're a Christian, in your relationship with God, there will come a time. Did you have God not answer any prayers in 2020? Where you had to put faith and trust in God's character rather than God's timing? Where you had to become dependent on God knowing what is best in His own way, in His own season, in His own agenda, and you had to wrestle with the arrogance in your heart that would hold God to your standards rather than submitting yours to His, then you know what it means to be a weaned child. See, a weaned child comes to Mom not for milk, a weaned child comes to Mom just for the presence just to be with her, just to sit in her life. This is like the best part of me being a dad because now I can take my three-year-old and get her a drink and she just wants to sit. There's no agenda, there's no plan, there's no demanding. She just wants to be there. And David says, that's how my soul is. God, I'm gonna trust your character. I'm gonna trust who you are. I'm gonna trust your timing. I'm gonna trust your plans. I'm going to quiet myself, and I'm just going to be in your presence. Now, here we go. Verse 3. Let's apply all this. David now turns from O Lord to O Israel. See that? See how verse 3 starts? Let me say, if you want to teach or disciple other believers to walk with God in their Christian lives, you will never do that well unless you spend time with God personally. In your Christian life, you cannot just move from text to text with people. You have got to be in the presence of God dealing with these art-level issues so that you can step into relationships. Listen to me. David has now done the work personally between him and God to now speak with confidence to who? The nation. That David as the king now stands up in front of the nation and says, Israel... What should they do? Hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. See, David recognizes this is worry, ha- like I said at the beginning, worry has a tendency to create distance between you and people. And only through relating to God and dealing with these issues in the context of prayer are you going to be able to move into being able to minister to others who are facing these temptations. You with me? That, wouldn't that be great if we were able to comfort the worrier, the anxious, and we, because we know that we've spent time with God? This is one of the big reasons that you need to be around Christians who've walked with God for 20, 30, 40 years. Because they have put in the work in their relationship with God. And you ever notice how when you talk to somebody who's 20 or 30 years ahead, they don't take your problem as seriously as you want them to? <laughs> but that's, God is so desperately serious. And they go, yeah, I understand that. And they give you counsel like verse 3. Oh, friend, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. <clears throat> hope in the Old Testament, that word has an element of waiting to it. Because David has got to step into his relationship with God, acknowledging that his relationship with God is on God's terms. And that David is dependent not just on God's answers, but on God's timing. You with me? That David has got to recognize that as he steps out, David may not even have, you know what's so interesting about verse 3? Is that David may not even have his prayers and his worries and his anxieties answered. That he steps out and says to those who are journeying up to Jerusalem to worship with God. Who are bringing their burdens and their cares and their anxieties and all of those things. And it's if David is at the front of the line going, hope in the Lord. If you deal, maybe I'll say this. Since we all deal with the temptation to worry. Worry is always clamoring. It's always frantic. It's always like that non-ween child in your heart. Would you agree? It's always demanding your emotional and mental energy. And one of the very uh, clear outcomes of worry, of wh- a lot of times the way worriers uh, seek to handle worry in their life and in their heart is control is I've got to say something, I've got to do something, I've got to handle something, because if I don't, it could all go wrong. And Dave, it was so interesting about Psalm 131 is that God doesn't answer the worrier, the fearful, the concerned, the frantic, with a guarantee. He doesn't answer it with control and with certainty. He answers it with hope. Isn't that frustrating? Don't you hate that? This is what God is doing in our hearts a lot of times with worry, is that God is weaning us off this control over our circumstances and relationships and certainty and careers and vocations and plans and ambitions and all those things, and God is weaning us, reducing us, so that we would get to the place to where we know that we can put our hope in him. Let me close with this. So here's what I want you to do. You got that list? That list of all of your worries? Turn over to Romans chapter 8. I want to bring out one thing and then we'll be done. Romans chapter 8, one of the Boy, this is kind of a, one of the best portions of the New Testament. To your right, to Romans chapter 8. See, when God weans us, he brings us to this, this place where he's, um, he's moving us away. He's making us recognize the tendency in our hearts toward control, right? Concerning our things that are too great and too mighty for us. As I was preparing this, I, th- I thought one of the things that is such an encouragement to you and I, when we get to verse 3 and we go, hope now and forevermore. Hope today and hope tomorrow. Why? Because we serve and worship a God who is unchanging. The scriptures say he's unchanging and in the heavens. And in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul is writing, and I don't want, I'm not going to pull out everything in this, but I just want to give you a flow, his flow of thought that helps you understand why hope is such a great answer for the temptations to worry. Romans 8, 26 says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Don't you hate You ever been there? You go, oh, God, I don't know. Help and stuff, and I'm not sure. God, you know what's happening in my heart, and here's what Paul says. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that great news? There's your prayer life, is that your prayers aren't even wise, but when paired with the Spirit of God, they go right to the heart of God. Now, you got two things happening here. you got the prayer life, and now Paul's going to give you good theology. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, we know, underline that if you want something to underline, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Prayer, good theology. Let's see what your response is. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Why does prayer and the word of God and hope in the character of God make sense? Look at his response. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know what the all things is in context? It's every single thing that will help you be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God's ambition for you is not to make you fretful, but to make you like Jesus. And he loves you enough to wean you off of control and arrogance and pride and comparison and spending your time and thinking about things you ought not be spending time on to bring you into a point of dependence on him, just like Jesus was in a point of dependence like him. And Jesus and his life and his death and his burial and resurrection are the down payment that God is fundamentally for you. You hear me? that you bring in all these worries and concerns and anxieties and think, I don't know what God's going to do. I'm not sure where God is. I'm not sure what God's going to answer. I'm not sure what, what he's happening. And you brought him in here this morning into the back door of the church, and you're not sure if God is even for you. Let me tell you, in Jesus Christ and what he has done through Jesus, God is for you. He will stop at nothing to conform you to the image of his son, and he will take every situation, every circumstance, every broken area of your heart, every temptation toward pride and worry and anxiety and sanctify you and grow you and develop you so that you can say like Paul does, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because isn't that the temptation to worry? That I'm left on my own. And the answer is, no, you're not. Amen? Isn't that good news? That he has come and he has died, and God will stop at nothing to make you like him. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these lines on the field that show us the field of play, we acknowledge that we bring hearts to you that are uncertain, fearful, that have a tendency toward independence and pride and a lack of self-awareness and critique of others. And, Father, for those who come in here this morning and are worrying, who are anxious and who are uncertain and who look outside at social media and the news and their career and their classes and their families and their relationships and their marriages and all of those things and face the temptation to believe that God is not in control, God is not for us, I pray that this aroma of Jesus Christ would saturate their mind and heart this morning. That the command that David gives to hope in the Lord would resonate into our hearts. That we would put next to that list uh, not ways in which we think can control them, to make our worries not ever come to pass, but that we would face our worries with the hope and the promises of your word. That we would face our worries with the confidence of a God who is in heaven, who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not, along with him, give us all things? Father, you have not left us alone. You are committed to us, and for that we are so thankful because so often we are not committed to you. May we reorder our feelings, our acting, our speaking, our thinking according to your word and your spirit. And would you encourage us as we leave this place to be people who are filled with hope because you haven't left us alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.